0: We're moving ahead this morning in our study of the gospel according to John. We are in chapter 2. We studied the wedding feast at Cana last week. This week we move on to, and, and you know we've already opened up the bag of worms that you know sometimes it's a little difficult to Reconcile the order that you find things in the Gospel of John compared to the other Gospels. And we're coming to something else this morning that is spoken about in the other Gospels, but they have this particular event coming later on, actually during the Passion Week, the week immediately before Jesus was crucified and dead uh, and buried and resurrected. But John has it at the very beginning of his Gospel. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, beginning with verse 13. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem, in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tablets and he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away, do not make my fathers a, a house of trade. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he, had, he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing but jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all the people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man you know reading through that i see about 15 more sermons it just is amazing how you can study a passage all week and then read it another time and there are things that just jump out at you you just kind of passed over the you know, the the whole week, so forgive me for doing that because some of the things that are there that are very precious, the fact of the matter is, as you know me, I could preach a sermon on every sentence in the Bible without a whole lot of trouble. <laughs> but we know that if we attempted to do that, that it would take us forever to make much uh, much headway in the Word of God. And, you know, we need to be about the Word of God. And so we, we struggle with, with, with hitting what we can and, and doing the best job that we can. With, with the understanding that there's just so much that we just can't ever, ever cover all the bases. That's how deep and unfathomable the work of God is, or the word of God is, and his work. Uh, but here we have the cleansing of the temple. And like I said before, you find this in all the gospels, but the other gospels have it later on. Uh, in, in their writing, and here it is, one of the first things that Jesus does. It's like the, the, the second public thing he did, and wasn't the, you know, the wedding feast that Cana really was not all that public. This is Jesus coming forth in, in the very center of what public meant to the Jewish people here in the temple. Well, like I said before, it's one of those things that if you're ever talking with any unbeliever who knows anything about the Bible, This is something they may bring to your attention. So I want to do that this morning so that when that happens, maybe you won't be surprised by it and not be able to respond to it. Because you will have this charge brought very often by unbelievers, and that is the Bible is inconsistent. He says one thing someplace and says something different in another. Here's an example. John has this happening at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. The other gospel writers have it at the end. People would say that that is a discrepancy in the scripture. How can you say the Bible's inerrant? How can you say the Bible makes no errors? Well, number one, for someone to even conclude that, they would have to assume that this is an event that took place in the life of Jesus only one single time. There's absolutely nothing saying that Jesus didn't do this more than once. As a matter of fact, I would say to you there's very good reason to believe that he did, in fact, do it more than once. You see, that, that, that argument that's put forth is based upon a false assumption. And the false assumption is Jesus only did this one time. Well, if you're familiar with the Old Testament law, males were required, all males were required to appear in the temple at least three times a year. So I just want to challenge us uh, as we begin this conversation this morning that Jesus, is not the first time Jesus has been in the temple. We know that Jesus kept every Old Testament law to the hilt. Therefore, we know this, and Jesus was around, you know, his early 30s here at this point, so Jesus has been in the temple, we know for a fact, at least 90 times. Now, remember, he grew up in Nazareth, which is not right around the corner from the temple. He traveled there with Joseph and very often with Mary on those regular required visitations. I would imagine when Jesus grew old enough to really begin to weigh things into balance that this was something that concerned him very greatly from the very get-go. Every time he was in the temple, he was exposed to this sort of activity. This place that was set apart for the worship of God There were great abuses taking place, an affront to God Himself, an affront to Christ Himself, and I would imagine that that from the very beginning that Jesus experienced this indignation that probably built in Him for years and years. And we see in these events, Jesus coming forth in righteous indignation. Remember we talked about righteous indignation in the book of Job, how very often when it comes from people it's very misplaced. That this is the example of holy and righteous indignation above all other examples in Scripture. Jesus was indignant as to what the so-called people of God had made the temple of God into. The disciples were reminded when all of this took place. This passage from Psalm 69, verses 7 through 9. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach, that dishonor covers my face. I have become a stranger to my brothers, and alien to my mother's sons, for zeal for your house has consumed me. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Jesus saw this not just as a, an affront against his father, but also one against himself. Calvin translates the, the, the word here that, that, that we've translated as consumed as, as basically the zeal for your house has eaten me up in totality it has devoured me so what was going on there that was so terrible was the fact of the matter is that uh the the, the people that operated the temple complex were doing all kinds of things there that were dishonoring to god One of the things that was so troubling to Jesus was that they had set up their wares in the area in the temple, the court of the Gentiles that was designated for Gentiles who came there to worship God. If you and I were living in that day, that's probably where we would have been. And so by doing that, what they've done is this, is, they, is, is, is a couple of things going on. Number one, the people that came there, they came there to do a lot of things, but one of those was to offer sacrifices. And to have sacrifices, you have to have animals. And many of these people came for a very long distance. You know, it took days for Joseph and Mary just to make the trek to Jerusalem. And you can understand why it would be more difficult if you were bringing animals with you. Lambs to, for sacrifice, cattle for sacrifice, other sheep for sacrifice. It would make the, tr- the trip a lot more difficult. So we have businessmen in Jerusalem that are taking advantage of that. And, and, and what they're doing is they're, they're bringing in animals to sell to people on the spot. So they don't have the inconvenience of having to bring them from wherever they come. Which sounds like a good thing. But a couple of things were going on. Number one, they were charging exorbitant prices. In other words, these people were becoming wealthy from this practice. And number two... They were doing it in the court of the Gentiles. That area of the temple that was designated as the place and the only place, by the way, the Gentiles could not go any further into the temple complex of this. This was their one and only place in the temple to worship God. And they could not do it because the place was overrun. It was not just overrun by the the, the people that were selling animals. It was also the, the money changers. See, every person that offered a sacrifice, they had to pay a temple tax. And that temple tax had to be paid in the currency of the temple. So you couldn't use greek drachmas and or roman money or any other form of money but that's the only money that people came there with and so they had to have a place or someone they could go to and exchange their own currency that they used on a regular basis into temple currency so they could pay their tax and lo and behold you had Innovative people that were there making business and making money by charging an exorbitant free fee to exchange that money and becoming wealthy in the process. That also was taking place in the court of the Gentiles, thus hindering Gentile people from worshiping God. Can you imagine being there? Maybe you've come from the other end of the world as people would have known it in that day. You've trekked, you've traveled for months to get there to Jerusalem to go into the temple and worship God. And you get there and you find yourself completely unable to do that because of all the noise and racket and distractions going on around you. You probably couldn't even hear yourself think. Jesus became incensed. We don't see him do this kind of thing all that often. But I would imagine... One of the things that amazes me as I get to know my Lord Jesus even better, and that is this, is his magnitude of restraint. Can you imagine how hard, how difficult it was for him to walk among men and restrain his holy passion? When he saw things like this going on, he saw the darkness, the deepness and the sinfulness of man. Even in the very house of God, nothing was sacred to these people. So, what does this say to the New Testament church? There are a lot of things that you could glean from this, and one of those is that worship is something that is very sacred to God. It needs to be protected above everything else. That is what we are about here when we gather on Sunday morning. There's the benefit of seeing people you love and care about all around you. But the principal and primary purpose must be when we come here on Sunday morning to focus not on ourselves, to focus not on our neighbors, but to focus on Jesus Christ and God the Spirit and God the Father. You see, reverence in worship is just as important now as it ever has been. we live in a day when we are constantly confronted with the idea and the concept that everything today needs to be casual casual clothing casual relationships And in some circles, even casual worship, where anything and everything goes. Let me ask you something do you walk into this sanctuary on Sunday morning without even giving a thought to what you're about to do? Has it even crossed your mind that when you walk through that door, there's a sense in which you're walking into God's throne room? I want to challenge this with all the all with the idea, and this involves me too. You need, um, you need to know that when I'm preaching, I'm preaching to Keith more than anybody else. You need to understand that's always true. Not just sometimes, it's always true. I can stand here before you this morning and tell you, honestly, I did not prepare like I should have to be here doing what I'm doing, in a sense. There's pressure out there from this culture around us and even within the boundaries of the church to make everything casual. Because that makes it more conducive to people's liking. I want to remind us of some sobering things this morning. If not, For Christ Jesus, in and in, in all that He has done for us, God the Father would strike us dead right now where we sit for the casualness by which we approach His holy throne, Jesus. Is the only thing that makes our worship acceptable. We are utterly and absolutely dependent upon Him for absolutely everything, even this. Hopefully, as time is passing by, that we are experiencing more and more the cleansing of the presence of Christ in us. In other words, our sense of reverence, our sense of the glory of God and his presence in, in things like worship services should be growing, not lessening as time goes by. We should come here on Sunday morning anticipating meeting God. Not just each other. That's important too. Don't get me wrong. The fellowship is really important. But it cannot take first place. And I want to address this too. Because we understand that there's a sense in which the New Testament redefines the temple. Now, I don't think it really redefines the temple. The temple's already always been where it has always been but the focus on it is no longer this building it's not this building this is not the temple this this room is not god's temple we in fact are god's temple and through our relationship with jesus christ god takes up his residence his abode in us just read from the scriptures do not do you not know that you are god's temple and that god's spirit dwells in you if anyone destroys god's temple god will destroy him for god's temple is holy and you are that temple Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the holy spirit within you whom you have from god What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will make my dwelling among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. God dwells within us. We are his temple. So, one of the questions we have this morning is how have I managed to pollute God's temple just this morning? much less this week. What have I allowed to come and enter into this most holy place We understand that there's a day coming when God is going to make it very clear of what is holy and what is not. And the only thing that is holy is that which is holy through Jesus Christ. He is the only one that can take that which is unholy and make it not only declare it to be holy, but actually make it to be holy. You see, we have some semblance of holiness where we are right now, but you and I only have a little teeny tiny taste of what it encompasses. That it's only when Christ will return. Let me say that when we die, our spirits go to be with Jesus. And we'll experience holiness at that point in a way that has never come close in our life here in the world. But at the same time, we also understand that that is going to pale in comparison to the holiness that we will come to know and see and love and embrace entirely, 100%, no doubt about it, when Jesus finally, in the end, establishes his absolute, complete, eternal kingdom. Sometimes we talk, church talk, we talk about the visible church as opposed to the invisible church. The church is you and I see it, as people see it. The invisible church is the church as God sees it. And we understand that there are people that are going to be in churches this morning that are just faking it. They may be totally and completely, absolutely misinformed as to what it actually means to be a believer because of the preaching and the teaching they get from their pastor. They just misled them and carried them down roads and highways that they don't have any business walking on. That we know this. That when Jesus comes back, he's going to do a lot of things, and one of the first things he's going to do is he's going to set his, his, hou- his own house in order, he's going to throw out the tares. He's going he's to pull those fakes, those copycats, those unbelievers that have somehow or for some reason convinced themselves maybe that they do believe when there's really no evidence that they do in their life at all. They're going to be cast into the eternal fire. Understand, Jesus comes for a lot of reasons, but one of the principal reasons he's coming is to purify his church in the world. J.C. Ryle writes about this. He says, the truth now before us is one which ought to make hypocrites and false professors tremble. They may deceive men, but they cannot deceive God. The church as it is now in this world is corrupted. Maybe far more than we even imagine it to be. Maybe far less than we imagine it to be. We, we all understand this, that everyone that proclaims the name of Jesus is not a believer. Because you could stop, the, you know, you could walk down the sidewalk in Donellon, Florida, even today, and stop people that you don't even know and ask them what religion they practice. And 99% of them are going to tell you they're Christians. There was a time when it was almost being a Christian. was synonymous with being an American. That's how much influence Christianity had in the early years in history of our land. And just look around and you see evidence everywhere. The sense of, of morality in our land is degrading by the day. Why? This is what happens when people move further and further away from God. It shouldn't surprise us one whit that the craziness that we just keep hearing about every day seems to get crazier and crazier. And that's because we're becoming, our nation is becoming more worldly. This nation was founded on Christian biblical principle. And we're seeing what happens when You move away from it, just as obvious as it possibly can be. People can fool other people sometimes, but nobody can fool God. Not at all. When Jesus comes, he will remove every vestige of corruption, the corruption of sin from us and from his church. In Isaiah chapter 6, he records a vision of God that he saw where? He saw it in the temple. And this is how he reacted to it. Woe is me. And he understands saying, I'm undone. I'm completely undone. For I am undone and lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of people with unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You ever hear people talk about the beatific vision? It's that first glance, that first look you have upon Christ Jesus at the time of your passing. When for the first time you will actually see him in a sense in the way as he really is. Do you understand that's only the beginning of it, however? That Jesus will not be in all of the fullness of his glory until he reestablishes his kingdom here on earth. I mean, we will know Jesus through our spirit when we die, but we will know Jesus in ways beyond that when he establishes finally his eternal kingdom in the new heavens and the new earth and we are there with him. That is where our home lies. This is not our home. We're just living here for a little while. Time we spend here in the world as it is today is going to be nothing in comparison to eternity. It's going to become smaller and smaller and smaller to the point that it's just like it never even existed at some point. But even in light of that, how much emphasis, how much focus do we put on what's going on in here today? How often do we think about what lies ahead? It's so easy to can consume with the worries and the troubles and et cetera of the day. That we need to constantly be reminded that this is not our home. That our home is with Jesus Christ and his eternal kingdom and the new heavens and the new earth. That we will never feel at home until that's where we are. And then we will understand what home really is. And it's way better than you can even begin to imagine. Our pea brains can't even wrap themselves around it. We see it. We're going to go, why in the world would I have ever... (laughs) God will manifest himself... In all the fullness of His glory, and we will know Him finally, really, as He is. Sounds good, sounds great.